<laughs> Good morning, church. The Gospel, according to Matthew, contains five collections of Jesus' teachings, the best known being the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Our reading for today contains the final lesson from the final sermon, a parable about the final judgment for this final Sunday of the year. We will be reading from the 25th chapter of Matthew, starting with the 31st verse. I invite those of you who wish to follow along in the Pew Bibles to please turn to page 35 of the New Testament. Let us listen for what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today through these words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? and did not take care of you. Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May God add understanding to our hearing of the word. to acknowledge that Doug and Lindy uh, Hetty are, are here with us this morning. So it's good to hear you are, you are in our prayers. Well, in, a, in a moment, I will, uh, a little bit later in the service, uh, say something that I always say at 10.30 because of how we serve communion, but I sometimes say in this service also that 
Uh, we acknowledge as we come to the communion table that it is God's goal for us and it is God's gift to us that we are one in Christ. It is a core disciples of Christ value, not just ours, but many Christians, that though we may differ on a lot, we are united in Jesus Christ. We claim him and we are claimed by him and we are given unity in that and we seek to perfect that which God has already made perfect. Unity is essential, an essential feature of our faith. But, and it always seems like there's a but, in the passage that we have today, we have Jesus telling a story about the Son of Man acting as a shepherd, about a king, about what most, not all, but most people agree is talking about himself, doing some division, not uniting, but dividing, and judgment with that division. A judgment that makes that division as permanent as possible. It is a passage that points up what I think is for many Christians a core division about our basic faith. For many Christians, what matters is what we believe, right? And that is best characterized by what Luther called the little gospel, the verse that contained, he believed, everything a Christian needs to know about our faith. And it focuses on, uh, God so, you know it, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, what, believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. The focus for many Christians, probably most Christians, is on what we believe. There are many other passages which state or strongly infer this same message, two of them to the point of exclusivity, that eternal life is only for those who believe in Jesus Christ. John 14, 6 the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father. Uh, King James, no man, but... Um, and then also one other passage, Acts 4.12, that there is only one name, that Jesus is the only name on heaven or earth by which we might be saved. Focus on belief. Belief is what makes us Christian. Belief is at the center. Belief is, uh, uh, um, even to a point of exclusivity, is essential. Other Christians believe that what we do matters and matters more and have scriptural support for that as well, right? We have this story of what we call the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't give him a doctrinal test, doesn't say, do you believe in God, or do you believe particular things about God, or do you believe particular things about me, but rather says, have you obeyed the laws about adultery, about murder, about theft, about coveting? Have you honored father and mother? And he says, yes, I've done all those things. Then Jesus says, then take all that you have and give it to the poor. And our rich young man struggles with that. 
but a focus in those three different way, places where it is told. A focus on not belief, but what is done, what we do. Uh, a parable Jesus tells about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus, where there is, again, an eternal division between the two of them, an uncrossable division based on the rich man, the one man, not helping the poor man, the suffering one, the sick one. The letter of James is by uh, purportedly the brother of Jesus, and he says famously that faith without works is dead. A focus on what is done in the name of faith. Now look, please, I am not arguing against the essential nature of belief, but I am suggesting that the New Testament has more than one way of looking at this issue. And that today's passage is one of those passages. Jesus speaks of judgment. There is no doctrinal test. There is no final exam on what one believes. But rather a consideration, a weighing of compassionate acts or the lack thereof. It is a passage that serves as an inspiration for a lot of good things in the church. Those of us who have been part of Family Promise are very thankful for the participation of uh, American Martyrs Church, Roman, uh, a Roman uh, Catholic congregation over in Manhattan Beach, because of their social justice ministry that is called Matthew 25. The frank truth is that family promise might not well have survived without the support of the Matthew 25 ministry over at American Martyrs Church. And we thank God for them and for their priority and for their inspiration from this passage. This passage has also served for a lot of guilt-inducing sermons, taking the idea of dumping a lot of shoulds on the congregation, right? That we should be more charitable, or sometimes you should be more charitable, that we should be more supportive of justice, that we should pay attention to the least. Innumerable guilt-inducing sermons. Perhaps you have heard one or two of those in your participation in the church. As we remember our Lord's arrival among the least of this world, it seems that considering the least of this world is at least a good image to ponder. And as with any familiar passage, I think it's important to think about what it says and perhaps also what it does not say. First, uh, this was a familiar image in Jesus' day, and in much of the world, it is still a familiar image. Goats and sheep can graze together, and in many places they do, but when it comes especially to cold nights, they need different provision, and so they are separated out. Goats need a little bit warmer shelter. Sheep, uh, which, who generally uh, bring a little bit more to wear to the party, uh, don't. 
And so it is not uncommon still in the world for them to be grazed together but then separate out into different places to stay. It is part of the ancient world. It is part of the modern world in many places. It is not part of our world. It was a familiar image, though, to Jesus' people. I say this only to reassure people who worry about goats. This is not a judgment on goats per se. It is not saying that goats are worse than sheep. It is simply using a familiar image. So if you're worried about the goats, the kids are all right. Okay? Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. The joke may not be, but the kids are. Secondly, it's not about individual charity. It is not about a judgment about whether or not you help that poor person who is out begging next to uh, a Ralph's market. It's not a judgment on individuals, but rather, plainly stated, it is a judgment on the nations. Not individual charity, but collective justice. Do we as a nation, do we as a society, as a collection of individuals, as a system, focus, serve, see the least who are among us. In the dialogue that happens in this parable, the accusation over and over and over, or the blessing over and over and over is you plural, you plural, you plural. And the response is always we. It is always plural. It may have implications for individual charity. But the language of the story is collective justice. Next, Jesus is not predicting the future, right? He's not saying this is what's going to happen. Would you really want to know what's going to happen this coming year? Here's the deal. You're afraid you already do know. Scary, huh? Yeah. Jesus is not predicting the future. He is like any good prophet seeking to instruct the present, his own present, but then continuing on through life, also our present. He's seeking to use these images to motivate serious consideration of what matters, what is important, what is essential. He is not saying you're all going to collect it someday and find out whether or not you go or not. Okay. Um, and then I think also, this is an invitation to consider what the Bible means, how the Bible, how the New Testament, how Jesus in particular illustrates who qualifies, who fits in, who is uh, a part of those who truly need, who are the least among us. Jesus begins, most basically, with hunger and thirst. The most essential of needs, right? The things in the hierarchy of needs that are right at the top. The things that are issues of life and death. If we do not have water, if we do not have food, we die. Right? The most basic, basic needs. And I would remind you of something I shared before, a discussion that we had at the men's breakfast, where Jimmy Koontz said that in these issues, there should be an agreed-upon floor in our societies 
below which we do not allow people to sink. Right? There should be a basic floor. People should not go hungry. People should not die of thirst. This basic of needs. These two are then followed by the essential value, the essential virtue of hospitality, which in the ancient world was also a matter of life and death. If you live in a harsh world, if you are exposed to harsh elements, then hospitality can and frequently is a matter of life and death and stands almost as necessarily essential as food and water. The Greek word is xenos. Uh, it can also be translated foreigner or alien, and frequently is. You may have heard a word drawn from that, xenophobia. We use that word a lot nowadays. The fear of the stranger, the fear of the foreigner, the fear of the alien. The New Testament does not use that word, but the New Testament does use a word, philoxenia, the love of the stranger, the love of the foreigner, of the alien. Lovely word. I mean, you wouldn't name your daughter uh, that, but, but a lovely word, you know, philoxenia. Um, a New Testament value over and against whatever other values might come of the issue. I was naked. Some of you were nervous about the artwork on this one by which I need to pause and say all of these sculptures are by a Canadian Catholic man named Timothy P. Schmaltz. This is him before one of his works, uh, Angels in the Midst of the Needy, uh, at the Vatican, at St. Peter's Square. Yeah. I was naked. I was naked. In the Hebrew framework of thought, nakedness is equated with shame, which can lead to a whole lot of unhealthy views of bodies, right? Uh, uh, shame and, and nakedness. But in the Hebrew framework, the shame is not on the person who's naked as much as it is on the person who sees that nakedness and doesn't do anything about it. So we have the story of Ham who looks on his father Noah and sees his nakedness and is cursed because he doesn't do anything about it, right? We have Jesus teaching that if somebody asks you for your tunic, give them your cloak also. In the ancient world, you only wore two garments. If you gave up your tunic and your cloak, you would be naked. And you would shame the person who had coerced those things from you, you see. Nakedness shames not the person who is naked, but the person who sees that nakedness and does nothing about it. Isaiah 58 says... Um, Clothe those who are naked and do not hide yourself from your own flesh. That person who is in need, who is vulnerable, is of the same flesh as yourself. And you shame yourself by their neglect. I was sick, he says. 
true of both the ancient world and I think of our modern world that we are just hypersensitive about contagion, right? Uh, so many more people wearing masks now, and I always wonder, are you protecting yourself or are you protecting me with that mask? I don't know. Are you sick and you got it on, or um, are you worried that I'm sick and you got it on? See? Cough right in the middle of that. So we're worried about contagion in our world and theirs, and we should be reminded of the New Testament image whereby Jesus not just heals, but touches lepers people who by their very disease were feared, created terror in their world. Jesus touches lepers. I was sick. I was in prison. There's a lot we could say about this. It may be that this particular image speaks to Matthew's generation in which there may have been Christians who had been imprisoned for their faith, and this is a comforting word for them to know that Jesus was in their midst. Have you ever been, ever been to prison? I mean, not sentenced, but, you know, visited. Even going into prison, knowing that it is temporary, even knowing that in an hour or two you will get out, there is this profoundly soul-shaking experience that happens when a door slams shut behind you. And if you're in any kind of secure environment, it does so over and over and over as you enter into the different degrees of imprisonment. It is a profoundly isolating experience, not just for those who are in isolation, but for those who are imprisoned. And Jesus says, I am there with them. Reconciling and in some measure erasing that very isolation with his presence. So all these things, all these things, I think worth considering. Probably a lot of other things worth considering, but at least some things worth considering when we think about what it means to to consider, to define, to get some sense of those that the New Testament, that Jesus, that the Bible means when we talk about the least. There are specific uh, definitions, specific qualifications when we talk about the least. But as I've considered this passage off and on, something more lately has struck me that just didn't even register when I first thought about this passage over the years. And it's simply this. No one saw the King, the Son of Man, Jesus, among the least. No one saw him there. No one perceived him among the least. We focus, I have focused on this passage as though not seeing was all about the goats, was all about the people who didn't see him and therefore neglected him. As though knowing that he was there would have been the key bit of information that if those who neglected the least knew that 
the Christ, the Son of Man, the King, were among the least, then they would have done something about it. Then we would do something about it. Because doing something about it would get them, would get us into heaven. If we just knew, right? If the goats, if the neglectful people just knew, then they would get around to seeing them because they would want eternal life. And eternal life, according to this story, is dependent on whether or not you do something. But the blessed don't see him either. The sheep don't see him either. The ones who help don't do so because they see the King, the Christ, the Son of Man, in the midst of the least. They did not perceive that presence. So what's the point? What's the message? What should we take from this? I'm still still not sure I know. If no one perceives it, I find myself wondering. Steve wonders. I don't know if this is the end-all, be-all, final answer But I wonder if maybe it might have something to do with removing self-interest from the equation. With signaling that our faith and our God are not transactional, that we are not doing what we do, acting the way we act, helping those we help, because we want to get something out of it. A religion where we believe what we believe, or do what we do, solely because we will get into heaven, is a profoundly selfish religion. If that is our motive, if that is our desire, what if we are called What if we are called to is not goodness for the sake of our obsessive souls? What if what we are called to is good, to coin a phrase, for the sake of goodness? Because goodness is good. Because there is joy in goodness. Because there is joy simply in doing what is right and what is good and what is pleasing to God. Not because we get a reward. Not because we get a benefit. Not because we are transactional and seeing uh, ourselves as somehow inducing God's blessing. But good because it's right. Because helping those who need help is the right thing to do whatever we get out of it. If so, and if it's not just a matter of whether or not I see and I am charitable, but whether or not we see and we are just, then we need one another all the more And we need God's guidance all the more as we seek out and sort out what it truly means to be followers 
people who believe and who do what we believe and what we do because we are followers, claimed by and claiming Jesus Christ. So what would that look like? 